0: Welcome everyone, Tony Nash here with Plugged and Unplanned, and today I have Steve Gloveski, the author, two-time author actually, he's got a new book coming out, was supposed to be in May, but the coronavirus did its magic, it's now coming out later in the year, but you can still pre-order it, Um, highly recommend, Uh, Time Rich, and when I think about that Steve, and welcome to the, the show and the program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, surely time-rich, I mean, now it would have been, I mean, I understand why publishers and, and authors are uh, considering um, perhaps delaying a release of a book because not everyone's, you know, not all shops are open. I get that. But geez, it would have been good to have it come out now as we all sit there contemplating our priorities and and even people at home who are observing What it's like to not have to travel to work, and be gifted two hours a Um, Mm. day—it must be falling. This this kind of subject must be falling right into your lap at the moment.
1: Uh, It's 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 a good question, Tony, and uh, it's something I deliberated at length when deciding whether or not to delay the uh, book release date or not. Um, there are many pertinent topics in the book and I've been writing about this at length. So I have been in some respects um, taking advantage, if you will, of the um, increased appetite in topics like workplace productivity, in topics like remote work, Um, having written an article uh, just recently called the five levels of remote work, which got something like a quarter of a million reads in the first couple of weeks. Um, And I think the decision was mostly influenced by the fact that I can't get up and speak at conferences, I can't speak at organizations, I can't do any of that stuff which uh, for business books in particular is quite powerful. So I decided that I'm just going to spend the next six months talking to amazing uh, people like yourself, hopping on podcasts, doing virtual summit talks, writing for publications like Harvard Business Review and I think that would be hopefully a better use of my time but as I like to say we don't know what the counterfactual would have been. So it's, you haven't really got something to compare it to. You can only hope that the, the decision you made was the best one and just go in, all in, as I say in the book as well, once you've made a decision.
0: Mm. So, do you, from, from the anecdotal kind of data that you're getting speaking to people, do you feel that um, people in general, and I guess we're talking probably about Australia, although you, you're probably in touch with people around the world, but are, are, are we all making are we are we recalibrating? Are we considering different ways of of operating?
1: Look, I think we are. Um, what you will find with any shift in operation, be it at a personal level, be it at an organizational level, is that there's always a lag. Uh, you know Your results in your day-to-day are lagging indicators of your habits, for example. Now, what we've seen in, for example, the corporate world is now that organizations have been forced to work remotely, we've adopted this sort of, where we're all taking part in this sort of global remote working experiment. Um, they've signed up to Microsoft Teams. They're using the technology. But what we're finding is that they're more or less replicating the physical office just online. So we still have the nine to five workday. We still have the one hour meeting by default with five or six people being inv- invited by default. Um, we still have these expectations of hyper-responsiveness and responding to say emails and, and uh, dings in Slack within a few minutes. And these are really things that plague productivity in the modern workplace. And, and I think that working remotely, is an opportunity for us to actually move away from that and to embrace say asynchronous working where it's about cultivating time for you to actually have the ability to think and to create rather than constantly responding to notifications and demands on your time kind of reminiscent of Pavlov's dog in that famous experiment.
0: Mm. So do you think there'll be more people working from home after this uh, for for very specific, um, you know, purposes and, and, and time sets and go, look, I, I just, and, and that there'll be more acceptance from management or from um, leadership teams and, and also from experts who have done, the, uh, 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 we've got to gift our employees, our team members who are, who need to do this st- strategic thinking, no, no, we don't want them. In- Can function and they can uh, self-manage, and we can get more out of them. Is that not only going to happen because for the outcomes, but is it also going to be better for their their personal their well longevity within the role? What 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 do you see happening?
1: Sure. So it's a good question. Uh, What I do find and what I do see is that human beings, especially particularly larger companies, have a way of anchoring to the past. So while I do see many organizations following through with this and perhaps continuing the remote working experiment, if not two to three days a week, because I think up until COVID-19, they're remotely one day a week, and that seemed to be as much as you could push it. Anything more than that and eyebrows would start to raise. Um, I think part of it might come back to, the manager's experience during COVID-19 and lockdown, did they find themselves being more productive at home or were they just itching to get back into it and found that they really struggled working from home? So if they have a, ne- a very negative experience of lockdown insofar as their productivity is concerned, then perhaps they're going to project that onto their employees and think that if their employees are at home, they're also not going to be very productive, um, which I think is a very, um, it's not a very strong connection to make because your employee has a different way they approach work. Maybe they have different realities at home. Maybe they don't have three kids biting at their ankles all day, um, telling them to go outside and play. So everyone's reality is different. But I do find that when you do cultivate that time and space to actually think and create and get into the flow state, um, what psychologists call the flow state, which is essentially um, the intersection of these two brainwaves, alpha and theta, which is kind of like, A dreamlike state where you're completely immersed and focused on one task, reminiscent of perhaps a surfer catching a wave. Um, And when you spend more time in that state, when you do more meaningful work, it actually has been shown to improve our uh, emotional well-being. And when there's not enough of that, when you don't have control over your work, that can lead to stress and burnout in the workplace. And um, just on that, Jeffrey Pfeiffer wrote a book a couple of years ago called Dying for a Paycheck. Which found that about five to eight percent of US healthcare costs were attributable to workplace stress. And a big part of that is just not having control over our work and just feeling like we're on we're in this state of constant hyper-responsiveness and it's it's not very healthy.
0: Hmm. Interesting. We we I'm the I guess the converse of that. We had our annual company Flu Shots um, a week or two ago. And it was great. A lot of people came in for it. I've been coming to work. Um, we've got the distribution centre right here. So uh, we always like to have at least one director at the office. And out of the, we've got about 260 to 280 people that work for us. And so the mm. distribution centre needs everyone there, of course. And we've got very strict health uh, regimens in there in terms of the morning shift come in for, uh, 4 a.m. is the first group, 5 a.m. is when most of the team arrive and they break with a half an hour gap in between before the a- afternoon to 11 p.m. shift comes in. And so this there's, there's security guards who are doing te- temperature checks. So we've, got, we've had quite a, a fair amount of, of structure to making sure we keep a healthy, safe environment. Mm-hmm. At the office, where we've got probably 120 people working from home, it was very cool to have, for one day, a bunch of people coming in to get their their flu shots, and not everyone wanted to get flu shots. But um, to have that many people come to the office, um, and just feel, isn't it good to have everyone around again, and for them to feel good to be around? So, so obviously, there's the aspect of working from home, but then there's also the collaboration and the social uh, enrichment of of people together, and you know, everyone here at Topia has got very like-minded purpose in terms of very focused on the customer passionate about books and so to to, for everyone to then experience what it's like to you know be in solitude or separated for so long and the difference and and what happens when you're next to each other there's going to be that as well so there's gonna the value of actually working from home but then also the value of being around people who are inspiring and who you who you can inspire and talk to. So it's it's gonna both on both sides it's gonna actually play out quite interestingly. Have you got any thoughts on that in terms of you know making sure that your you know your book is about being time rich. So um, how can you how how can you be time rich at work with so many interruptions?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh- So a couple of things on that, it comes back to firstly the nature of the work that you're doing. Um, So work has very much transitioned from say algorithmic work at the start of the 20th century which was standing on an assembly line putting widgets into a box. The more time you spent doing that the more widgets you put in boxes essentially. And now work has transitioned to uh, heuristic work, thinking with our minds. We're knowledge workers, at least not all of us, but many of us, no doubt many of the employees of Booktopia are knowledge workers. And so to do that work effectively, oftentimes that does require cultivating time and space to actually think. Um, The difference between knowledge work and algorithmic work is that with algorithmic work, you can conflate hours with output, presence with productivity. With knowledge work, it's been shown that we only really get into that space of deep work for about four hours a day. But funnily enough, most people aren't getting anywhere near that because we're just tending to lots of meetings and responding to emails. The average executive responds to uh, 72 emails a day, spends about six hours in their email. So there's just a lot of interruptions that Every time you're interrupted, it can take you about 23 minutes to get back into the zone. So that's why I say it's important to cultivate this space for work that requires thinking. And at the same time, you're absolutely right. We don't want to do away with human interaction. I used to tell people for the first four weeks of lockdown, oh man, I've got this. I've been training for this my whole life. I can just read books and write and work out and go for walks and listen to podcasts and I'll be happy. But now we're about two two months, two and a half months into this and I am just hanging to get back out there to uh, converse with people. I can't wait to give people a proper hug despite all the social distancing we've been doing. And uh, you'll see that companies like uh, Basecamp, uh, who have about 65 employees, most of whom are scattered all over the world, Automatic, which powers about 30% of the internet through the WordPress platform, they've got about 1,300 employees across 75 countries, no central office. But what these organizations do is that they, they flip the script in a way rather than saying you've got to be at the office for 11 weeks, then you get four weeks off. They say, you guys work from wherever you want, but for two to four weeks a year, we're going to be running events, company conferences, um, meetups in your local area where people who work for this company come together and hang out and build social bonds and camaraderie. And I think when you do go about your work in a way where, you do create a culture or, or, or a way of work where you can focus on the high value tasks, it means that you don't end up spending 12 hours a day working on shallow level tasks, but it creates more space for those things that you wanna do in life. Whether it is those social bonds, whether it is going for a surf, whatever the case is, that's essentially what this book's getting at. Doing your best work, but also freeing up time to live your best life as well.
0: Mm. Interesting. So you've written this book Time Rich, that's your second book. Well the second book that we have on the Booktopia website We had mm-hmm. the one a couple of years ago on employees to entrepreneurship um, What What inspired you what what sort of I don't want you to give too much away I never like to you know, like we don't what's the point of seeing this this recording? Um, and then no one buys the book of course we want people to buy the book, but at the same time uh, we want to inspire people regardless whether they read it or not I mean that's mm-hmm. your I guess that's your mission I can I, I can only imagine and if people want to then dive deeper into into understanding how they can master managing their time or em- empowering their lives and others then they'd want to read your book but what what was the um, you know what inspired you and and what work are you doing now that that really relates to you know to the message and the the content
1: mm-hmm so two things inspired me. One was the distant past when I worked in the corporate world for, for large brands, big four accounting firms and things of that persuasion, whereby I found that the majority of my time was taken up in several hour-long meetings with 10 to 15 employees around the table, essentially communicating information. And more often than not, when you're just communicating information, that can be done via An email. An email can communicate information. Um, And I found that the culture at many companies was built upon this notion of outsourcing accountability, where rather than take ownership, make a decision, and even if that decision is the wrong one, we take ownership, we fix it, we move forward. It was always a matter of how can we spread accountability. Hence all the meetings, hence all the emails flying around with reply all and several people being cc'd at all times. And I found that this was not a very... Empowering place to work, as I said, when you have control over your work, that ties into emotional well-being, um, as Dan Pink found in Drive. Autonomy, uh, mastery, and purpose, a key to intrinsic motivation. And so many great people I worked with all left to pursue greener pastures everywhere because they just felt that that culture um, did not allow them to get anywhere near act- self-actualization. Um, now, this that that's the distant past. Now, I founded a company five years ago called Collective Campus. We're a corporate innovation and startup accelerator. We've incubated over 120 startups. We've we've worked with about 60 big brands around the globe. And two and a half years ago, I felt that I was just copying some of these hallmarks of the corporate world, hallmarks of the industrial revolution, having a regular nine to five workday, but often working till seven, eight or nine. But I found that because I had more control, I started experimenting with different ways of work, and I realized that I could automate a lot of these rudimentary process-oriented tasks that made me feel like I was busy, but really was not the best use of my time. I learned that I could outsource the things that I couldn't automate. I I delved into the psychology of work and realized that we're all predisposed to taking the path of least effort. I mean, this is evolutionary programming because our brains want to conserve energy just in case we need to evade predators or catch some prey and so when we sit down at our desks it's easy for us to spend an hour on email or jump on LinkedIn because I mean it's easy but it also fools us into thinking that we're being productive but come the end of the day if we carry on like that we have very little to show for it. So over the course of these five years at Collective Campus I built this culture where I was way more productive than I'd ever been before. Um, if, if I mean The the backstory. Collective Campus went on to become a seven-figure business, one of Australia's fastest growing, according to the Financial Review, in 2018. Uh, I founded the Future Squared podcast, which is 380 episodes long. Aside from the two books that are on Booktopia, there's three other self-published books. We founded Lemonade Stand, which is a kids' entrepreneurship platform uh, three years ago, and a a venture capital um, arm called Collective Venture Capital. Now, this is all based based on working about five to six hours a day, focusing on the high value tasks, focusing on uh, cultivating that flow state. And this is something I wrote about in Harvard Business Review um, in an article called the case for the six hour workday, which unpacks how we maintain this high level of output while working minimal hours. And that experiment that we ran, which birthed the six hour workday article, I went back to the team after this. Uh, experiment and asked a number of questions, got a bunch of feedback on productivity as well as emotional well-being and everything, productivity did not drop at all. In fact, it had gone up a little bit. Emotional well-being, people were loving it. They had more time to spend with family. One of my colleagues had a, a had a daughter about six months prior to that experiment. So we got to spend more time with her. And since then, we have basically said, look, you work the hours that you need to work because what we care about here is quality output not how many hours you're at your desk not which desk you're at what matters is the work itself if that takes you two hours or 10 hours that's on you and um that's essentially the central premise of this book how can you get twice as much done in half the time just by being more intentional about how you work which we've never really learned in school we never learned how to work funnily enough and you know we never learned how to learn either while we're on that topic of what we didn't learn in school, but that's essentially what I would what I would say is the key premise as to why people should pick up this book
0: mm, Interesting because they don't teach that at uni either really. I mean, it's almost like you're modeling other people who you're working with to um, to determine your, your your best practices, I guess
1: more or less, and oftentimes the people we're modelling aren't very intentional about how they work. They've picked it up from someone else. And mm. you know, when I was uh, say in, in many a large organisation, what I was modelling, th- there was there was no guidance. I was modelling meetings, emails. Uh, knowing what I know now about the psychology of work and comparing it to how I worked, say five, ten years ago, it's apples and oranges, complete different ends of the spectrum. And it was just never something anybody spoke about. I mean, people speak about technology. We talk about digital transformation projects and spending billions of dollars in some cases at large banks on transforming the organization. But what we often do in those cases is we take processes that were designed in the 80s and 90s, essentially broken processes for today's uh, business world, and we just digitize them. They're still broken processes. They're just zeros and ones now instead of paper uh, and envelopes, right? So that's why models are important. Uh, And and many people who have written books about learning, say you should model yourself on someone uh, who has already mastered these skills. So if you want to learn how to shoot three throws. Three-pointers, speak to someone like a Michael Jordan. Maybe not a Michael Jordan, someone you have access to. But ask them, what are the three things that are going to make me a better uh, three-point shooter? And what are the three things that I, I should absolutely try and avoid? Uh, and that will help you get a lot closer to your goal a lot faster. But if, you're, if you haven't got any positive role models to... to to ask these questions of when it comes to work or to observe because human beings learn more so by observation rather than what we're told, uh, then inevitably you're going to pick up some of those those bad habits. And that's why this book tries to um, serve as a bit of a wake-up call uh, to disrupt that thought pattern and way of work that many people have unwittingly. Um, picked up, no fault of their own, but that's just the nature of uh, of many an organization today. And we're starting to see the tide turn a little bit, but I think we have a very long way to go uh, to get companies to a point where they're comfortable with organizations being almost completely asynchronous in the way they communicate and letting their employees design their days in ways that work uh, for them, in ways that will allow them to do their best work for the company.
0: So. So, do you actually are you um, and your team are, they, are you running workshops on on this, or do you are you just um, kind of downloading and unpacking what you do to um, to be functional in your day? what's what do you do for uh, with regard to this?,
1: oh, it's a bit of birth. So we on the back of this book, we have uh, created a few workshops so people can find out about that, the collective campus website. Um, So we've been running those workshops now for a number of large companies uh, most recently with uh, Charter Hall a large commercial real estate company uh, where we run the workshops but another aspect of that is if Organizations are serious about this then we also need to look at their their culture Um, because we can come in and run a workshop But if your processes and systems don't really uh, lend themselves to people having any freedom in their work I mean for example Uh, delegations of authority is something that so many large companies have and that essentially means uh, you know if I need to make a decision around where to deploy say a thousand dollars of capital I might need to get approvals now if small decisions require me to get approvals from say three or four other people then that's going to take time to coordinate and that just means that something that should have taken five minutes might take five days or even five weeks that slows things down Uh, it means that it makes it very difficult for us to get stuff done and it's also very very demoralizing for that person who's trying to get stuff done and actually make an impact while they're at this company Um, which manifests itself in a lot of people regressing to some kind of state where they just live for the weekend and do the bare minimum to stay employed which is as far as I'm concerned a very terrible way to live your life and probably shows why something like 85 percent of people globally are either disengaged or actively either actively disengaged or not engaged at work Um, a big part of it comes back to that lack of control so uh, that that's that's what i'd say on that is that yes there are workshops but two you've got to look at your culture your systems your processes and that's something that we also uh, work with companies on
0: Mm. so it sounds like there's you know there's i guess corporate Uh, beliefs and value systems that inhibit people or limit people and enabling to do what they can do through the corporation but surely there's also um, you know you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink so as simplistic as your message is or your or the the foundations of your of your the way that you you restructure and reorganize how you can you can run your day there must be some people that That still don't um, embrace or 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 try and um, you know let go of what's been stopping them and and see how do you yeah I mean I've got to you can't you you can't solve you can't solve the world you can't no everyone will everyone has quite an investment in in being self-sabotaging in whatever way and they may not see it that but they've got belief systems that stop them from being effective stop them from making um, time a priority for themselves stop them from being collaborative um, is there is there a certain kind of profile a person that they've, they've got to be half cooked you know they're ready to make this leap Um, And others, you just kind of go, oh, oh my God, it's just, uh, you know, it's not even worth talking to that person because it's it's like talking in another language.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Tony. I mean, you'll see that profile mix show up in all walks of life. Uh, Whether someone wants to educate themselves and put in the hard yards whether someone wants to Get healthy and eat cleaner and go to the gym regularly whether someone wants to improve the way they work. Uh, You either have uh, Someone who like you said uh, they're half cooked. Uh, I mean oftentimes in life when people pick up a book from say Socrates or some ancient wisdom. It's because they're looking for answers Maybe they've gone through a lot of hardship and when a student is ready a teacher appears and it might be the same in this case someone might be burnt out from work maybe they're hating they're working on an entrepreneurial project they've got all this funding but they're doing all these things they're super busy working 12 hours a day it's causing problems at home they haven't got any time to invest in their relationship with with their spouse or their kids so they're going to look for answers and then you have another profile which is people who they're just always looking to optimize. They're looking to improve. They're reading all the blogs, they're listening to podcasts like yours. They're always looking for little pearls of wisdom. And and they acknowledge that if you can get just 1% better every day, that adds up to a 37 times improvement over the course of a year. And I'm definitely one of those people who always looks for the little improvement. And then over time, you see the compounding effects of that. So I definitely agree. You have different profiles. uh, And one thing I would say though, for organizations or leaders out there who think, wow, this is just such a huge uh, step change to what we're used to. You don't need to do it all at once. You, okay, a simple philosophy I like to think of is snowflake to avalanche. You know, Maybe instead of trying to roll this out across an organization of 500 people, maybe you have a team of five or 10 who are working on a specific project where you can start to Uh, test these ways of working um, and see how they would go about applying that in their company see what processes or systems stand in their way Um, and then over time you'll begin to learn whether or not it's working for them how is it working i mean what are some positive case studies that come out of that that you can then use to inspire other teams in that organization to try this out as well Um, because when it comes to starting anything new whether it's uh say a a new way of working or even say a gym routine or whatever the case is i mean we're ultimately fighting against that path of least effort but what we can do to counteract these evolutionary biases that we have is to just take the smallest possible step because um as isaac newton said in his laws of motion an object in motion stays in motion an object at rest stays at rest so once you've pushed a ball or a big boulder, the amount of force that's required to keep that boulder moving or rolling is less than that initial push. So for example, if I wanna go for a 5K run, I might think, oh, I really can't be bothered, but let's commit to 500 meters. That tricks my brain into thinking, oh, that's nothing, 500 meters, let's do it. And once I'm out there, after 500 meters, it's so much easier to do another 500 meters and another 500 meters. Kind of like sitting on your couch one night, you've got some books on the coffee table. Yeah, you, You're not really in a reading mood. You pick up the book, you read one page, so much easier to turn to the next page. So that that's one thing I would say. Start with the smallest possible step. Trick your brain into taking bigger steps and just... Experiment in small teams rather than trying to roll this out across the whole company from day one, because you don't know which aspects of this way of working will work for you. And two, you're going to set yourself a you're raising the bar too high because then you're dealing with all sorts of personalities, all sorts of systems and processes. Test with the small team and go from there.
0: Hmm, interesting. It kind of feels like when I think of, and this is just my intuition here, um, the way because um, you know, I haven't read your book and it's not out yet, but it kind of feels like you can read it for yourself, doesn't matter whether you're at the lowest level within your organization um, or whether you're the leader of your organization, because it's it's really about um, you and the way that you operate and the way that you want to live your life. So it's... I think that's my message to anyone who's watching this podcast or is thinking about buying the book. It's it's kind of like, don't worry about that you're not the leader. Just be as effective as you can be if you want to be as effective as you can be. And my experience of that is having worked for 40 years almost uh, is, to, is that um, just because the organization and perhaps the CEO and the leadership and the executive and the directors and your manager don't think that way, you just go somewhere else that will will um, happily um, employ someone with that kind of attitude. So um, you left your company obviously because of those reasons, you, and you set up a new way of operating. So um, I think my message here um, is to anyone who's watching this: is like, doesn't you don't have to be the leader. Just invest in yourself. Robert Kiyosaki. I did a lot of training with Robert Kiyosaki. Mm-hmm twenty five years ago, uh, Rich Dad poured out and and he would say that the biggest return on investment you can get is by investing in yourself. That if you think about investing in shares or investing in property or investing in you know Bitcoin doesn't matter. You will get the biggest ROI when you invest in yourself. And this is kinda of like the way it's kinda of coming across here. Um and time time is a commodity that we are gifted in the day that we are born and uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying that I'm the best use. I've not been a great um, exponent of that. I, I think my wife and and previous employers and maybe even my own team would say that I don't I don't um, I don't uh, um, do a great job potentially of of being optimal with my time. But I aspire to that, and that mm. that makes a lot of sense to me. And and even. At um, you know the age of fifty six, soon fifty seven, it's like no, no, I can still, I even at this age, I, I would be happy to, to continue, you know, to master that. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a, I don't think I th- I think this the virus has really helped us understand how what a what a valuable thing time is.
1: Oh, could not agree more. I, I think um, time. Like you said, it's it's the most valuable commodity we've been given, and uh, Seneca, uh, the ancient Roman philosopher, uh, wrote a book called On the Shortness of Life, and he, he says that you know, life is not short, it's just that we squander so much of it. And um, you, you see this show up today as well. Uh, you know, So many people run around declaring how time poor they are. You, know, you ask someone how they're going, and for whatever reason, the default answer today is "oh, just so busy, crazy busy all the time," as if it's some kind of a badge of honor. Um, but then, if you look at how people actually spend their time, you realize, not in every, but in a lot of cases, it's not a matter of being time poor; it's a matter of being decision poor, um, and and that comes back to. Uh, touching our phone over 2000 times a day, uh, spending more than four, sometimes more than five hours a day staring at our smartphone, which adds up to about 10 weeks a year. Um, Every time we look at our smartphone, respond to a notification, check an email, like I said, That's going to interrupt uh, your your flow state, your ability to focus. It can take you 23 minutes to get back in the zone. Sometimes we'll be working on a piece of work, say it's something arbitrary like a PowerPoint presentation. And we'll get that done to a point that's satisfactory uh, in, say, a day or two. But then for whatever reason, we'll spend another day or two just working on the formatting, just working on what I call residual work, which doesn't add more value. At that point, high performers know when to shut the gates and move on to something else. Uh, we, we spend our time on so many, what I call $10 an hour tasks that really we should be outsourcing or automating. Um, but we keep doing these things. You know, when I ask entrepreneurs, um, I actually show them a table of, in the book, it's it, details. an hour tasks, $100 an hour tasks, $1,000 and $10,000. So $10,000 being strategic thinking uh, about the future of the business, $10 an hour tasks being something like reconciling uh, your invoices. And I'll ask them, what percentage of your time are you spending on $10 an hour tasks? And more often than not, the answer is about 50%. So it becomes clear to me. Uh, based on my research, based on my observations, and based on uh, yeah people I've spoken to, having incubated so many startups and worked in the corporate world for a decade, that it's the decisions we make that ultimately uh, result in us being time poor uh, and ultimately result in us not having that time to invest back into, say, our personal relationships, our health, our fitness, and our hobbies, um, which make life all the more richer. So... um. Definitely time is there Um, it's just a matter of how we go about using it and henceforth the name of the book time rich
0: So So do you set a a hard and fast? Number of hours you talked about six hours before do you are you is there like some ruthlessness around that or even if it was like Okay, six hours on average uh, per day. So 30 hours in a week Um, Do you are you? is there some? Mm-hmm. do you have some sort of rule that you, that you try and get? or even eight hours like to, so people get back some people are working 12, fifteen hours a day. So what do what do you what do you, th- what do you think about that?
1: Sure. That's a good question and uh, it's not necessarily that there is a hard and fast rule. Uh, it's more so that you have priorities that you want to uh, get off your page on a given day and rather than having 20 things on the to-do list and wanting to get through all of them the reality is you know if you apply things like the Pareto principle which is a universal law of nature the top 20 percent of tasks on your list are going to create the vast majority of value more than 80 percent of the value so what i try to do is to focus on say the top two to three things i need to get done and just get them done and just clear that space to focus in on these things, they're the high value things I need to get them done. Generally what I find is when I do that, it might take me somewhere between five and six hours to get that work done. Um, Now, if I work at that deep flow state for, for four or five hours, if this work is going to require me to invest say 30 hours into it, I know that after five hours, I start to feel that cognition decline. I can keep working on it, but I've hit that point of diminishing returns. Uh, The quality and quantity of my output is going to suffer, and I'm much better off coming back the next day. And um, there was actually a, a study that I referred to in the book, which found that scientists who worked 20 hours a week were about twice as productive as scientists who worked 40 hours a week because over time the, the the compounding effect on the cognition of those scientists who were essentially overworked was massive. So they'd come back the next day after working, say, uh, 8 to 10 hours and they wouldn't be functioning anywhere near as uh well as those scientists who are working say four to five hours a day um and then getting to that point of diminishing returns and just stopping and we've seen this show up in different domains as well uh the the berlin conservatory of music uh, uh, ran a study around violin students which found that they could only really put in four hours or so of deliberate practice a day before the result of their practice, the um, the the benefit just fell off the edge of a cliff. And, and so that's why I say it's rather than a hard and fast rule, it's more or less a guide. But, you know, there are going to be times when perhaps you have uh, a capitalist and you're a startup founder and you're going to meet with them tomorrow, but you've got to get all your answers sorted, all your ducks in a row, and that's going to take you all day. There are going to be, do that it's a matter of uh working in a way that's sustainable so as in sports you know you have your regular season the playoffs the finals there will be times when it's the finals where you just have to dig deep work longer hours but you need to be uh really honest with yourself and objective and and acknowledge that that's fine for short spurts but you can't do that for 20 30 years you'll not only will you find that uh, you'll burn yourself out, but you'll just have a much lesser uh, experience of life because you're basically neglecting everything else uh, that makes life so special.
0: Mm. Mm. Great. I'm I'm getting a lot of value out of this conversation myself. I'm (laughs) thinking about, okay, I could do that, I could do this. I'm looking around my messy office and I'm going, all right, I need to clear things up. Is there things like that? Like, you know, your space, um, what about sleep? I mean, have, have you got any, um, you know, they talk about eight hours sleep and mm-hmm. make sure you get to sleep at 10 or before 10, because the, the later it is, um, the less is there, any, because obviously that's a, an important part of regenerating. Have, have you got any view on that? Oh
1: yeah, definitely. So sleep is, if you could only do one thing, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about take this vitamin, try this workout routine, you know, wear these blue blocking glasses, uh, whatever the case is. I mean, if you could just do one thing that's going to have a fundamental impact on your quality quality of life, it is sleep. And, um, I mean, Matt Walker, who is a sleep he calls himself a sleep doctor, wrote a great book on this called why we sleep. And, uh, you know, he found that for most human beings, Uh, what we need is eight hours i mean there are people who are one to two standard deviations from the mean who may get by on four hours but they're the exceptions to the rule so the eight hour sleep cycle is really important because most of our deep uh, REM sleep the rapid eye movement sleep that comes with say uh, the dream state occurs in between the sixth and eighth hours of an eight hour sleep cycle and that deep REM sleep is fundamental for both creativity as well as emotional regulation So we take that out of the mix. We're nowhere near as good problem solvers. We're more irritable people to be around. uh, And that just affects our quality of life. And it also means that we are predisposed to early onset of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, um, which obviously we want to do our best to, to, to delay that as much as possible. Now, interestingly, one thing I unpacked in the book was that 30 to 40 percent of people are what you would call night owls because we're all born with uh, chronotypes which either predispose us to wanting to wake up early or wanting to wake up late. Now 30 to 40 percent of people uh, are night owls which means they effectively are way more productive 10 hours after waking up compared to early birds who are productive more or less two hours after waking up. Um, Night owls who are forced to wake up early suffer from the From Social jet lag the kind of jet lag you might suffer after pulling an all-nighter so when you think about the fact that maybe half almost half the of our workforce is being forced to wake up at Say 6 or 7 a.m. To get into the office by 9 That's wreaking havoc on their ability to perform So when you hear people say you need to be in bed at 10 and up at 4 or something like that Let's you know start up hustle 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 Maybe for some people that works, but Mm. for a lot of people it doesn't and so for every successful early bird Uh, who likes to glorify waking up at 4 or 5 a.m., like Jocko Willink, the uh, Navy SEAL, who posts his wristwatch on Instagram every day. There are others who wake up at, say, 9 or 10 10 a.m., like Tim Ferriss, who's a famous author and startup investor as well. It really depends on uh, what your predispositions are. And that's why organizations that are asynchronous, that do provide uh, their employees with more freedom to design their day, can get more out of, night hours as well rather than forcing them to be in the office at 9 a.m. with everyone else, um, which I think is something that may have made sense when we all had to be at say a physical place of work like a factory, but now is making less and less sense. Um, So just some quick tips on falling asleep or getting a better night's rest. Uh, it's been shown that blue screens don't, don't help us, so staring at your phone or your laptop just before bed is a, is a big no-no. Uh, even uh, the lights in our house, something like 5 to 10 lux lights, can also suppress the release of melatonin, uh, which makes it harder for us to fall asleep, so uh, avoiding screens before bed, uh, trying some blue blocking glasses, which suppress the, the release of uh, the blue light, uh, essentially uh journaling before bed is great because it means you take any thoughts that are you know, keeping you up at night put them on the paper just transferring those thoughts i find um helps and then for some people they find that say a hot shower before bed also helps because as your body's cooling itself down that puts it in a relaxed state which makes it easier to fall asleep so they are just some quick tips uh there's a whole lot more in the book about sleep but yeah, when it comes to cognition, when it comes to doing our best work uh, and just being happier people, sleep is numero uno.
0: Mm, interesting. So and not having had a chance to read your book because we're well before publication date, um, anything that I didn't touch on today that you thought, oh we you know, I wish Tony brought that up or we you know It'd be nice to talk about this, anything that you you want to leave us with before we part?
1: Uh, there's a a hell of a lot in the book that we haven't touched on I mean it's a 70,000 word book so it's impossible to touch on all of it in a 50 minute uh, podcast conversation Um, but I would just say that The number one thing I would just look at people doing, it's not really the number one thing, but just some simple thing that people can do to take away from this is next time they sit down at their desk, you might have a to-do list of 10 things on that list. But what you might try and do is just draw two columns or three columns next to that list and just write uh, value in the first column. The second column will be costs and then the third column will be the result. So rate all of these tasks out of 10. What's the value of this task really in terms of getting you closer to your goals number two the cost in terms of time uh, out of 10 and then divide value over cost to come up with the result and what, what you'll find is some tasks you might have a result of three where there's where the, uh, whereas others will be a one so focus on those high level tasks rather than just defaulting to those uh, low level tasks um, because then you're just going to find that for the first two hours of the day you might have Felt busy, but you really had nothing to show for it. And also reflect on whether or not those low value tasks that you're performing um, on a day to day basis are actually tasks that you might be able to automate. Nowadays, there are so many tools that are off the shelf. You can find them online for something like $10 a month and they will automate a lot of a lot of these things that maybe you're spending 30, 60, 120, three hours a day on. Uh, And if you can't automate them, then get onto a platform like Up work um, or freelancer.com. And you'll no doubt be able to find uh, a freelancer, uh, a virtual assistant, uh, potentially offshore to help you with that task for less than $10 an hour. And again, that's just going to free you up to focus on those very high level tasks at the top of your list. And the better you get at doing that over time, the compounding effect of focusing just on high level tasks is going to be absolutely massive. Um, So, it's, it's, it's a choice we need to make and it's a, it's a matter of just being more intentional about how we work because if we're going to spend more than half of our waking hours, hopefully not that much if you apply these uh, lessons in the book, but say a quarter of our waking hours working, then let's do something that is actually meaningful.
0: Mm. Brilliant. That's so great. Well, thank you, Steve, so much for your time and congrats on completing the book and all the other amazing things that you are doing with all of your projects with um the campus and incubation and startups—it's is really really impressive, and we look forward to hearing more. and And we wish your uh, book great success. Thanks, thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Tony. And I, I should say also that uh, people can download the first chapter of the book and download a PDF with all sorts of Time Reach tools over at uh timereachbook.com. And And uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. And um, I just want to. Also, just congratulate you on all your success. I think you're a big inspiration to uh, entrepreneurs everywhere, particularly Australian entrepreneurs like myself. And um, yeah, wish you all the best as well.
0: Thanks, mate. All the best. Speak to you soon. Ciao. Cheers.
1: Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free